Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. Over the last couple of years, we've touched on Moorcock's influence on the science fiction and fantasy genres, not only as an author, but as an editor and nurturer of new talent thanks to his work on a variety of publications, but most recognisably via New Worlds. New Worlds magazine had been around since the 1930s, but once Moorcock got a hold of it in the 60s, he, as one of the foremost British authors in the so-called New Wave of more socially progressive and experimental science fiction, he reformatted it as a folio or digest-sized publication and took it to new places. He contributed many works himself under his own name and under pseudonyms like James Colvin, including the original novella version of Behold the Man. New Worlds would also publish a range of British authors, including the young Terry Pratchett, M. John Harrison and Robert Holdstock, and continuing their presence in the magazine were the likes of John Brunner, J.G. Ballard and Brian Aldiss. Aldiss rejected the notion of his status as part of the new wave, though insisting he'd been around before it and he'd be around after it was gone. Mocock also attracted a host of American authors as contributors to New World, such as Roger Zelazny, Thomas N. Dish, and Harlan Ellison. Ellison, as it happened, was busy editing and promoting his own New Wave SF story collection in the USA, 1967's Dangerous Visions, and, later in the early 70s, again Dangerous Visions, collected dozens of genre-challenging and boundary-pushing short stories by a host of authors, many now considered giants in their field, such as Philip K. Dick, Norman Spinrad, Larry Niven, Poole Anderson, Fritz Leiber, and Samuel R. Delaney, to name but a few. So much talent, so much content. Incredibly gratifying, then, that this show's guest, Andrew Nett, journalist, writer, and lover of all things pulp, along with his co-editor Ian McIntyre, has compiled a series of over 30 fantastic essays looking at the impact of radical science fiction from the 1950s to the 1980s. Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction 1950 to 1985, is hitting bookshelves now in the USA and in the coming weeks elsewhere, and is a follow-up to their similarly fabulous volumes published by PM Press, Gale Gangs, Biker Boys and Real Cool Cats, and, sticking it to the man, Revolution and Counterculture in Pulp and Popular Fiction, 1950-1980. So Andrew and I hooked up over the Dairy and Tom's telephonomatron to discuss all of this, the delights of pulp nastiness, the Australian view of genre fiction and pulp, and some other bits and bobs. So sit back, sharpen a bamboo cane, and join us as we talk New Worlds and Dangerous Visions. And we're back in Derry and Tom's, and on this occasion I've got with me Andrew Nett, co-editor and author of some of the contents of Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, which I think is your third publication for PM Press, looking at the wide variety of genre fiction and science fiction and various other things that we'll drill our way down into. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for coming along. Thank you very much for having me, Andy. It's uh, it's an absolute pleasure. So just by way of introduction, normally we would talk about uh, a Moorcock book specifically, but just uh, to kick us off, tell us just a little bit about the book, Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, and how it originated. 
and then uh, we can drill down a little bit into some of the inspirations behind it. Well, the book is the third book that I've co-edited for a publisher in in the US called um, PM Press. And I mean, they've all basically looked at various aspects of pulp and popular publishing in the post-war period, the 50s, 60s, 70s, going into the 80s, but mainly the 50s, 60s, 70s. The first book we did was called Girl Gangs, Biker Boys, Real Cool Cats, Pulp Fiction and Youth Culture, 1950 to 1980. And that's when we looked at sort of the the wide expanse of how pulp fiction had, I suppose, depicted youth culture, youth subculture in the post-war period. And that was everything we started out with. um, And they were basically based in the, uh, looking at books from the US, uh, the UK and Australia. That first one started out with uh, juvenile delinquents or you know, they, they had various names in the in the US, in the UK, they were teddy boys. In Australia, they were known as bodgies and widgies. And then we moved through, <laughs> we moved through beatniks and then hippies. And then we did groupies. We had an extensive section on bikies and then moved <laughs> into, the, into the 1970s. That, that one was very heavily on, very heavy into New English Library. Yeah. And looking at their depiction of, um, I suppose, various English subcultures, but also their whole look at, at, at um, bikey fiction, which was a huge strand of 1960s, 1970s pulp fiction in the UK, uh, the US and Australia. Then we did a second book, which is called um, Sticking It to the Man, Revolution and Counterculture in Pulp and Popular Fiction. And that was sort of looking at how, I suppose, various radical movements had been depicted in pulp and popular fiction. Again, in Australia, the UK and, and uh, the US, part that was a huge book. And when we delivered it to the publisher, they basically said, look, this is far too big. We can't handle a book <laughs> this size. And, and the book included, so it looked at all these various sub, it looked at all these various radical movements, but it also looked, it also included science fiction. And I sort of said to the publisher, well, look, why don't we just hive out all the science fiction and we'll do a third book? Hmm. And that third book ended up being, which which was just a third book purely about science fiction, which is the one when we're, we're primarily talking about today, Dangerous Visions and New Worlds. And that actually could have been, gosh, I feel like that could have been four or five times the size it is. And it, we still wouldn't have touched. We still wouldn't have been able to cover everything we wanted to cover in it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned the first book. I'm old enough to remember the tail end of the Teddy Boy craze. And... Um... How much did Chawaddy Waddy ever break over in Australia? Oh, yes, I do vaguely remember them. Yes, <laughs> yeah. they were. Well, when I was a kid, I remember Chawaddy Waddy being on top of the pops, but the, the main reason I remember Teddy Boys is because I used to catch buses from Hull Bus Station, and Hull Bus Station in those days was mm. like this old cast-iron riveted iron frame with a, with a crappy old roof that was probably made of, of asbestos or something with, uh, with old concrete platforms. But there was a bus driver's cafeteria just to the side of it, where all the bus drivers would would hang out, smoke fags, drink mugs of tea, and everything else. And there were two who, when I was a kid, probably were in the may, may well have been in the fifties or even early sixties, who still dressed. It, they had their bus driver's coat on, but everything else, they were full teddy boy. They had the teddy boy hair, the mm-hmm. hu- huge—I forget what they called the shoes—the huge platform shoes. I have really, really fond memories of of kind of just how different. Kind of culturally, those like little touch points that you still had when I was a kid 
of what came before in terms of you know that cultural zeitgeist around certain things and this is why i find genre fiction so interesting and so exciting is because it is it's a link back into those things but anyway we'll get into all that rubbish anyway well it's also a link into it's a link into these movements that were once huge such mm. a huge part of the cultural cultural imagination and the cultural economy of countries that are now almost disappeared mm. You know, I mean, one of the things, jumping around a bit, but one of the things is that there's a subculture in Australia. I don't know, you you wouldn't have heard it in the UK. They were called sharps. And sharps were, and that's the other thing about, you know, talking when you talk about these subcultures, they sort of blend into each other and borrow from each other. And the the, the delineations around them, you know, are very sort of, um, are very malleable and flexible, aren't they? But sharps were... They were kind of like skinhead. They were sort of skins, but they were moving into punks. And they used to have these gangs in Melbourne of sharps in the 70s. They used to be like the Thomastown sharps and the, you know, the Broadie sharps. And they, they, were, they, they were these, you know, they had really short hair and they used to wear those, the, the big boots and the really tight jeans and they used to have sharpie girls. And these were a major moral panic, I remember, in the <laughs> 70s in Melbourne when I was growing up. And they were largely a Melbourne phenomenon, I think. You know, there would be certain train lines that you were told, don't go on that train line because that's the that's this sharp gang's, you know, territory. Yeah. And they would be in all the papers. And I, and, and But actually, in terms of history and in terms of their depiction and fiction, I have not been able to find, and I've, God, I've looked, a single book, literary, popular, pop or otherwise, in terms of fiction, that is a depiction of sharps. They have been completely eradicated from the public consciousness in Australia, in Melbourne, despite the fact, I know a couple of people, I know a, a guy who does a, who runs a second-hand bookstore in, in Northgate, we're going to be throwing around lots of names here of places in Melbourne and the UK that various people, mm. depending on where you're from, may not know, runs a second-hand bookshop. He did a history of the Sharps. And I know there's bits and pieces of other stuff, but literally Sharp, they've totally disappeared. And you find that with these, these subcultures. Yeah. And because they're marginal and they're not elite subcultures, um, they're obviously they're often quite working class, or they're seen as quite subversive. Mm. They just don't get catalogued. They don't get the um, like everyone. Everyone can talk about where where you know where they were at Woodstock because of these people have all gone on to to run tech companies and work yeah. in the film business and things like that. But no one ever tells you, you know, no one can ever say, you know, remember famous events in in in, in Sharpie history. Yeah. Or probably for Teddy Boys as well, you know. Yeah. I find that kind of stuff quite fascinating, that things that were such a, a major part of our culture have totally been obliterated. That's that's one of the shames of it, isn't it? Because our, our main, I, I remember finding this growing up when I was I talked to my parents about things, or my aunts and uncles, because you grow up thinking that our, our cultural history is basically dominated by those people you just mentioned, the people who might have been at Woodstock or the people who who were hippies at the time and who went on to found companies and, and you know, become Richard Branson or whatever. And when you grow up, you kind of have this idea that that's what, was like, that's what it was like. But then I talk to my folks and it's like the, the, the closest they got to any kind of hippie movement in Hull was when, I don't know, Pink Floyd played the ABC nightclub in 1967 or 68 or something like that. And the closest they came to really kind of counterculture in, in in like the working class environments of Hull where they were grown up um was you know because they had that someone from the spiders from mars was from east Hull, you know yeah right yeah of course so so it's and you're right it's a shame and there's, there's a book absolutely crying out to be written there 
about about these people about this subculture and I don't know I guess it's just a, it's such a shame that it you're 40 years past that point at some point when when all of a sudden it occurs to you that that little piece of cultural history is 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 kind of vanishing and you've almost left it too late absolutely yeah. I mean these people are I mean the 50s is a memory now the 60s very soon will be a memory mm. um the 70s is on its way there's a great I mean there's a I've got a, couple of projects going on the ball about the touch on aspects of these but these are times that are rapidly fading from mm. from the living memory and once they fade from the living memory well, and the people who do have a living memory let's be honest are very yeah. old their memory is not as sharp as it uh, as it would have been you know yeah yeah I'd, I'd love to think that somewhere that that those teddy boy bus drivers are probably long dead now you know, and, and, and that, that, that little piece of cultural memory of Hull, which must have had a Teddy Boy scene because there there were yeah. these bus drivers in the 1980s still clinging on to it. Yeah, it's, it is a shame and it needs to be captured. And I'll, I'll just kind of give a little shout out to a, a, a series of books by a, a publisher in um, in the UK who, who've been publishing. They're only about 24 pages, but they're basically just um, photographs of Hull. You know, black and white photographs of Hull. I, I always kind of love the idea of, of being able to just keep hold of a grip of some of these things because when I was a kid in Hull I remember large parts of it still being wasteland from from the bombings in World War Two, and you know obviously that's not something you want to hold on to but it's actually a, a, a serious part of our culture and heritage that is just really concreted over now and it's really it great something. when you get these little basically what are effectively zines which just kind of show you some of these things, and usually there's, you know, there's, there's, there's always something nicely artistic about seeing a photograph of an old street of terraced back-to-back houses with a, a kid playing with a milk bottle. <laughs> oh sure. Well, there is change, and and change yeah. happens, and change is not always bad. That's that's certainly it. But I think also we have a very skewed view of what history, what architecture, what culture is worth. Mm. preserving. I mean, the example from Melbourne, which anyone from Melbourne will be able to relate to, is the Docklands. Mm. The Docklands was this massive area on the outskirts of Melbourne uh, on the bay that was a Docklands. It was mm. an act, you know, for a long time it was an active Docklands and then it was just sort of old old docks and old buildings. And in the, in the 90s and early 2000s, the entire, virtually the entire lot was, was knocked down and this incredibly hideous antiseptic suburb this you know made suburb was created yep. there called docklands but see there was never any sense that um and i'm not saying that you should have we should keep the entire docklands you know mm. it, it, but but there was never any sense that any of it was worth was worth chronicling or worth keeping yeah. or worth preserving you know yeah. so hull and melbourne sound very uh, similar in that respect because <laughs> the vast the vast majority of the docks in hull have been filled in with cement and sterile housing estates have been placed on them. You know, fairly, fairly middle class, you know, some grass verges, some trees and everything else. But yeah, the, the, almost the entirety of Hull's historic Docklands, long gone. You've yeah. got a, you've got a North Sea Ferries terminal and a couple and a couple of docks just south of the city centre. Pretty much everything else has gone. And it's, it is a shame. But, you know, that's progress, isn't it? Anyway, we, we always go off on tangents on this podcast. and uh, oh, I'm and with me. We've kicked off with tangents, but um, just, so you're growing up in seventies Melbourne. Where did your first kind of entry point into this kind of genre fiction, things like Moorcock and and skinhead novels and and all these things? Where 
what was your end? Well, I would like to have said that I was into some of this stuff earlier than I was because for no other reason than the fact that I would have kept some of it so I wouldn't have to shell out the enormous <laughs> amounts of money that you'd have to pay these days to, yeah. to buy any Richard Allen novel. Yeah. No, look, I um, it's it's. I mean, Melbourne, Australia, uh, it was a it was a, it was all, you know you can you can look at the history of the basically the the, the clash between British and American culture in Australia. That's yeah. been an ongoing debate, basically going back to the twenties. We had aspects of both of those cultures and those cultural influences. But 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 when I was growing up, when I was when I was very young in the seventies. You know, my cultural entry points were, oh, look, they would have been secondhand Valiant and, and, and um, you know, comic, those British comics, Warlord yeah. and Valiant, all that stuff, I used to devour that stuff. And then when we got, got a bit older and we wised up to, to action and 2000 AD and battle and that sort of stuff, that was huge. So that would have, that probably, and, and along with things like Doctor Who and mm. things like that, they were sort of the cultural entry points into that wider world of science fiction and and pulp culture i suppose mm. like uh, probably a lot of young people i you know i got into science fiction relatively early um well i got into i mean talking about those sort of contradictory imp cultural influences you know it would have been on the one hand i was a huge conan fan so i'd read uh -huh. all the I'd read all the Robert E. Howard and all the you know, all the various pastiches and yep. completed books based on fragments of Robert E. Howard books. So I was big, big into Conan and, and Sword and Sorcery, but I was also very big into sort of starting to get into British science fiction. And certainly, well, well whatever what, whatever I could get access to easily, which was in the 70s, mainly still Sphere and New English Library books. Mm -hmm. Um, they just seemed to be much more easily available. I remember they were in newsagents. I'd just be able to go down to a newsagent and buy a, a Robert Heinlein New English Library edition or a Moorcock book. I also remember the Westerns. I remember those horrendous plantation pulps that were all influenced by Drum and Mandingo. They were still, they were mm. everywhere. You know, those sort of, well, they've been called slaver pulps or they've been called yeah. um, plantation pulps. I remember that stuff very vividly. I also remember, uh, which is, I think I might have, we might have had some some communication online about the fact that I really related to your Sven Hassel <laughs> episode, <laughs> yeah. but purely because Sven Hassel books, not, and I haven't yet to read a single Sven Hassel book, but they were everywhere. They were yeah. just all over the place. So those were the in points, but also thinking back about it too, TV, film, you know, we were pre-streaming culture. Mm. So I don't know about you, but in my house, Sunday night movie was a big deal at my house. Mm -hmm. And my parents would all sit up and watch the Sunday night movie and I'd just sit up with them and watch whatever it was, westerns, war films, spy films, occasionally yeah. science fiction, although that wasn't so big. And, of course, late night TV. So those things were really my sort of entry points into this. And I mean, in terms of the sort of, I suppose, the, the broader themes of this podcast, you know, Moorcock was a big part of that. There was a Jerry Cornelius and the Elric books yeah. were a big part of that. Yeah, and, and actually, Moorcock is obviously shot through Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, and, and we'll, we'll take a look at some of that as well. So a couple of the conversations we've had were really interesting in that you, you pointed out some of the things that were very, very specific uh, kind of Australian genre pulp stuff. 
and like really i think we were having a conversation on twitter about sven hassel and there was lots of um like korean war pulp war novels that over here it would have been all douglas reeman royal navy ships on on covers or um you know, I think I don't think I've ever read any Douglas Riemann, but I remember reading HMS Ulysses by Alistair MacLean, and yeah, yeah. And, but whereas I remember you sending some pictures of I'm sure there were covers of um, pulp well, war it's, novels it's, yeah. with jet fighters fighting the Chinese MiG menace over uh, over North uh, South Korea. Yeah, one of the biggest pop publishers in I mean I did my PhD and, I, and it's going to come out as a book next year. One of the with an English publisher, actually, English academic publisher. One of the biggest and, I suppose, most innovative pulp publishers, so Australian pulp, Australia did have a local sort of pulp publishing industry which grew up in the 1940s, late 1940s, largely as a result of import controls that were placed on, I suppose, American pulp material, which was, which was seen as hugely salacious and threatening to young people's morals. That was in the late 30s. And then in the 1940s, those those import controls were expanded to all imports that weren't to do with the war effort. Hmm. So that was virtually all print material. It was basically prohibited from coming into Australia from about 1939 to all overseas, I should say, imported print material was prohibited from coming into Australia from about 1939 to about 1959. I mean, in reality... You, you, never, you can never stem the flow of that sort of stuff. But, you know, it, it certainly created a big opportunity and there were all these Australian Australian publishers that decided they'd start doing pop. One of the biggest that was those was Horwitz. And Horwitz was a sort of weird publisher in the sense that it was a pulp publisher but it was also quite a hybrid publisher it had a had a foot in the mainstream pulp mainstream publishing area and what Horwitz did very effectively which is um because I'd had all these books but it was only when I really studied Horwitz I realized that what they did very effectively was that they would keep they would basically monitor overseas publishing trends Hmm. and then they would create local analogs Australian analogs of, of overseas publishing trends so for example, in the 50s, a, a major overseas popular publishing um, sensation was naval war novels, Herman Walk and I think uh, Alastair MacLean's first book and yeah. um, all, all these various novels. And so, and so Horwitz did this huge series of naval war novels. Mm-hmm. And likewise, in the 1950s, what we would now call sort of Nazi exploitation stuff, so that would be uh, sort of, you know, your House of Dolls and uh, Scourge of the Swastika, these kind of semi-fictional books which were basically plugging into various stray. You could do a whole show on that. I mean, you did it with Sven Hassel, you know, that whole fascination, horror, revulsion, the sex, mm. the violence, all that sort of stuff. So Horwitz produced this series of about you know, several hundred books which were all about the Australian POW experience under the Japanese. Yeah. And they were incredibly explicit covers. Like they're, they're mainly about Australian servicemen and civilian Australian women, although sometimes they're American, usually nurses, yeah. being subjected to every single possible sexual and physical deprivation you can possibly do, certainly on the covers anyway. The contents are a bit different. Yeah. Um, but they, this series of covers, most of the, the most visceral ones of which were, were, were drawn by this guy called Cole Cameron, who was Horwitz's main artist in this, one of Horwitz's main artists in the 60s and 70s. But that in turn reflected the fact that POW fiction was really big in the 1950s and 1960s. And actually Australia was a real pioneer of POW fiction in the 1950s 
And that was mainly material um, written, was usually non-fiction accounts by Australian servicemen of, uh, although there was, were a couple of female accounts of Australian servicemen and their time in Japanese POW camps, which was horrendous. Yeah. Um, and they often, used, they gave the British a good serve too, because the British were seen as having royally screwed up the defence of Singapore. And, and for Australia, see, that was our big trauma of World War II. The vast majority of people of Australians that were killed in World War II were killed in Japanese POW camps, largely taken prisoner at the outset of the war, Singapore, etc. And there were, the, so Horwitz did this huge list of incredibly um, salacious, violent, sexually violent books that they were that were going on well into the seventies, and some of mm. these some of these were published in you know three or four different editions. They were hugely popular, written under a couple of house names. One was John Slater, the other was Jim Kent, mainly serviced by one people, although various Horwitz authors would jump in and jump out. But this stuff, um, you look at this stuff now, and they also had a variant of that, which was a sort of Nazi exploitation variant of that, which was mainly sort of attractive members of the French resistance dealing with, or, or, or attractive, or people in concentration camps, because Australia mm. didn't really have much purchase in the European war against Nazi Germany. We were very involved in the war um, in, in North Africa, but that wasn't mm -hmm. very, very sexy and, yeah. well, and didn't, hasn't birthed a, didn't birth a great deal of fiction, whereas the war in the Pacific, huge amount of fiction, including a huge amount of, of, of pulp fiction. And actually you read, the interesting thing is you read those mainstream books that were bestsellers in the 50s, the ones that Horwitz then sort of based their own sort of pulp takes on. They're actually as racist and, and violent and sexually violent as the pulp stuff. You know, they're very, it's, it, it, that, that stuff was huge in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, it's very interesting that you mentioned the, the lurid covers as well, because that was that was kind of the entry point to drag people in, wasn't it? Did, whether whether the contents would match or otherwise, and I think we discussed it a little bit on the um, on the Sven Hassel show that we did. That there was there was something very very striking about some of those Corgi covers in the um, certainly in the early eighties. The Corgi covers from the seventies were like sepia black and white pictures, actual real pictures of of dead German soldiers in mm. some barbed wire with with black and red. Really striking imagery, kind of plastered around it, and and a and a, and a stand first underneath that said the book no German publisher dead print, and and a lot of these covers, particularly when they when they get republished over and over again, I think it's a real lost art. The cover of the sixties and seventies, because I know it's certainly, it's certainly the case with Sven Hassel that by the time they were getting republished, probably in the early nineties, and they've not been always in print, but the Leo Kessler books had kind of sold. God knows how many copies, and there were. Whereas the Sven Hassel books tended to be, um, you know, lurid and unpleasant, but generally had an anti-Nazi and anti-fascist bent to them. The Leo Kessler books were all about heroic SS men um, fighting against odds at Monte Cassino, and and, and really kind of, <laughs> yeah, really, really quite, you know, wrong-headed. But the, but they also had these covers that matched that. The covers were almost like um, really nicely painted covers of a comic. So really clean lines. Um, nothing really terrifying or disturbing about them and sadly in the 90s the Sven Hassel books got those covers which just meant that they just got, kind of got lost in the mix but those those Corgi covers of the 70s and 80s just leapt leapt off the uh, off off the the shelves in the face of a a 10 year old child but but it is it is fascinating that the stuff about the Australian trauma in World War 2 informing a whole 
field and, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books that were voraciously kind of swallowed up. I now, I now need to actually find some. <laughs> no, well, you, you can't. They're, they're actually collector's items now. I've got. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is you can never find out who actually read them. You know, <laughs> the re- interesting. I've got I've got a lot of these books, and every now and again you find like a woman's name as the owner. You know, in the in that you open the, the front cover, yeah. and there's a woman who's written their name. But they're mostly you presume they're mostly men. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I don't think men, it wasn't just men that read pulp, but I think it was men that mainly read these very salacious, violent Nazi exploitation and and PO, Japanese POW camp books. The, the covers are pretty. Fo- I mean, the covers the, the covers of the Nazi exploitation books very much are part of that tradition of the sort of sweat magazines and the shutter pulps in America. You know, with their with Nazis menacing you know people with blow torches and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, or or the sort of the Orient, you know, the sort of more racist Oriental, mm. you know, the, the sort of Fu Manchu type characters. Yeah. As in the Japanese prison camp guard sort of ogling nurses and things like that. But some of them are, you know, some of them are things like, you know, Australian servicemen being staked in the middle of lagoons and there's sharks around them. Or there's even one really famous one. I don't know how famous it is, but it's, it's quite infamous where this guy has sort of been crucified by the Japanese, which links back to actually something that was in a Neville shoot book. Um, what's that That shoot book about uh, the, the POWs in Malaysia? That's a famous scene um, in his book, the name of which, of course, has completely escaped me now that I've, I've met. A Town Like Alice, that's right, A yeah. Town Like Alice is very famous for a supposed scene where a Japanese crucify an Australian, P- Australian POW. But, yeah, that stuff was everywhere right up until i suppose the 80s it started certainly pulp started to die out in the 80s and poor it stopped publishing in i think 92 some pulp publishing mainly westerns Hmm. which is the sort of most reviled pulp genre i think in the sense that you can still go into rural bookstores in in victoria rural victoria today and find you know huge shelves and shelves and shelves of westerns that turn mm. over all the time but no one ever talks about them they never get reviewed mm. so there was an australian pulp publisher that was started in 1952 and they went they went till 2018 they were still pumping out westerns yeah i never really got into the pulp western thing but strangely enough when when, when my granddad pops used to give us all of these hand me down all these books back in the day for whatever reason I don't think I ever read one, but he also read loads and loads of them as well, but they always went to my sister. So oh, my there older, you go. My older sister, Jane, she had piles and piles and piles of J.T. Edson and and various other kind of pulp Western novels. Absolutely tons of them. And, yeah, for whatever reason, I, I never got into yeah. those. But then as a kid, I was never really into Westerns, so that's probably what it was. I don't know. Well, I'd say, and, and who read all those Van Hassel books? I mean, they, they were all... I, I do remember... <laughs> I never bought them, but I remember they were they were, they were always... Plentiful in the news agents of my seventies youth. Yeah, someone was obviously buying them, and for the, that matter, someone was obviously buying those plantation pulps. But, yeah, um, the weird thing about about if I think back to the news agents in the seventies or the eighties, you you had all the goodies, you had all the pop bottles, you had all the magazine and newspaper racks, you had the top shelf with all the grot mags like Razzle and Escort, and then you would have just a spinning stand of paperbacks and. In my memory, this is probably wrong, but in my memory, always twenty percent of them were just Sven, all of Sven Hassel's books. <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't remember seeing them in W. H. Smith's. I don't remember seeing them in a bookshop. It was always newsagents, always. And they're still, they're still. It's interesting that I mean, like, and this is the same. I imagine, you know, in the UK, I mean, this stuff gets harder and harder to find. Hmm. But the thing I never have trouble finding, not that I usually buy a Sven Hassel books. Hmm. 
you, you find them secondhand all over the place. Yeah. And those New English Library plantation pulp books. Mm. I still find them everywhere. Wow, I've, I've, I've never seen. Fi- try and find a Richard Allen. Try and find a Richard Allen yeah. skinhead book, though, and you really, you know, you're really going. I mean, I have, I do occasionally find Richard Allen in the wild. Yeah, but it's uh, it's a good day when that happens. Yeah, um, I've, I've never ever seen one of his skinhead books or any of those. I've never ever seen one in a. I occasionally see them. I occasionally, and yeah. I buy them obviously when I when I see them. Yeah, even even um, the uh, the G F Newman books like uh, "You Nice Bastard" and "Say You Bastard" and and, and all those. Hard I've to find. To, still. Yeah, I got. I end up getting them off um, off the auction site. I've n- never seen one in a. In a oh, I, I find yeah. that stuff. I do find that stuff. I mean, I think the interesting thing about Australia. Because we were, because so much English culture was dumped on Australia. That includes, mm. I mean, Australia was basically Australian publishing was essentially controlled by the English until about the sort of sixties when that started to break down, and they and 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 the English used Australia as a sort of massive dumping ground for remainder books. Oh, so, right. okay. So, so Sphere. I mean, I, can pres- I presume this is what it is. So Sphere, yeah. New English Library, Corky. That stuff is still everywhere. Yeah. In secondhand shops and um, you know op shops and all that sort of stuff, it's still very easy to find that stuff oh, around. Um, sounds like so a presumably because yeah, presumably well, presumably because it was dumped in such yeah. incredibly large numbers. Yeah, that it sort of finds its way out now. Yeah, there was a time where, to me, if if a book had a New English Library or the sphere symbol on it it was an instant mark of quality and something that i huh. wanted to get my hands on you know it, it, it wasn't just about authors and and covers literally uh, the nel symbol and the sphere symbol when i was 13 were give me it i don't care what it is i want it you, you kind of knew that there was something uh, going to be good under those pages but you know what we've we've um we've been on a couple of tangents there but we need to get down to talk about dangerous visions and new worlds so okay. you've, you've told us about how it came around and and kind of what the original plan was and this ended up being a third book but it does tell a really fantastic story it's it's a collection of essays but actually it tells a, a consistent and coherent story and pretty much in parallel you've got these two i don't know in a way upstart sci-fi publications in the 60s under the stewardship of moorcock in the uk and new worlds and you've got um, Dangerous Worlds under Hal and Ellison. Yeah. Sorry, Ditsy, Dangerous Visions. Um, yeah. And you know, and against this kind of backdrop, you've also got this development of a, a more overt—I don't know if intrusion is the right word—but a more overt intrusion of politics into oh. science fiction and and, pro- and progressiveness, which comes oh. to the fore, I suppose, in 1968 in that watershed moment with the competing ads in Galaxy magazine: one pro-Vietnam War one anti-Vietnam war, and for the first time you end up with this kind of um, political split of the sci-fi establishment. And it's it's really, really fascinating to read it in, in more detail, and there's tons and tons to learn from this, not not least of which that, um, you know, some of the female authors writing under male names but it's it's in many ways it's 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 like the seed of what happens all the time now on twitter in that politics and people's opinions about their art explode frequently and regularly through social media through articles through people complaining about work culture and all these things so this was kind of like the original watershed moment in science fiction where politics explodes to the fore and something is branded as dangerous and subversive by the establishment 
Well, it's probably, and it's easy to see that in, in retrospect. It's easy to, to carve out a, a narrative about that in the in the um, you know with a historical overview of it, mm. whether it was necessarily seen as a seen as that at the time. Well, that would have been so. Obviously, around Vietnam, that would have been seen as huge debates and a very mm. active debate. I mean, I think the thing is a lot of it. A lot of it is. I mean, with the decline of the left, a lot of it back in the fifties and the sixties seemed to have more, and the seventies had more purchase on the mm. street. Mm. It was a much more of a real sort of events, whereas it sometimes feels, although obviously, you know, this is not necessarily the case, sometimes obviously feels that it's more of an online phenomenon a lot of the time this, these days, or, or certainly what gets publicity is an online phenomenon, you know, is an online phenomenon, those culture wars, those sort of debates that you see happening all the time. Mm. I mean, the book, the book is an effort with, with all with all the books, with with girl gangs, with uh, sticking it to the man, and with dangerous vision. Certainly, I mean, I'm my, my co-editor, so I'm just I'm just, I'm one of the co-editors, and the other co-editor is a friend of mine in Melbourne called um, Ian McIntyre. And I mean, we certainly think it's important that these books they cover off on the main people. So if you've got a if you're talking about radical or new wave science fiction in the 1960s and 70s, you've got to talk about Moorcock, you've got to talk about Harlan Ellison, you've got to talk about Delaney, you know, you've got to talk about Philip K. Dick, although he's a bit of a he's a bit of a different one. Yeah. Judith Merrill, all those people. But it's also sort of what we try and do in all these books is we include authors that are, are lesser known or have mm. been forgotten. That's kind mm. of important. So, for example, one of the one of the essays I did in the book was a um, was a female writer who was called who wrote under the name Louise Lawrence. Her real mm. name was Elizabeth Holden, and she wrote. She was one of the earliest people I think who was writing YA science fiction specifically for. Um, for teens, yeah, and probably for teen girls. So that yeah. back in the 1970s, when she was writing, very early 70s, when she was writing her first book, Andra, um, that was a really innovative, new, different thing. And you know, mm. um, so so that mix is really important. You want to have the main people, the main touchstones, of course, Octavia Butler, all those people. But you want to Marge Piercy, etc. But you want to include. I certainly want to include series that people have forgotten, authors that maybe just wrote three or four books, then bug it off, you know, mm. which, that kind of stuff. So, for example, one of the great essays in this book, I think, is my co-editor wrote it. It's about uh, this um, series of books uh, in the 70s called Que, Q-H-E, mm-hmm. exclamation mark, who was like this sort of shaman sort of, priest from a sort of lost kingdom who goes and fights sort of bad guys uh you know goes and fights right-wing governments and you know tries to bring that he tries to bring about world peace and they were written by this guy called william bloom who was mm. this sort of countercultural figure in london in the 19 late 1960s early 1970s um Things like that. You want to include these. You know, he was a new. I think he was a New English Library author. Uh, you want to include series like that that no one's ever heard of. That, that stuff that's picking up on things that are going on in the zeitgeist of the culture, in addition to those really big, you know, debates and currents that are going on. Yeah, they have made it onto my to find list, um, and along with many, many, many other things. And one of the big problems. I'm going to say problems with a small p about a publication like this is it will end up costing me a fucking fortune because huh. I, I will be chasing down so many of these things. One one of the things that flew off the page at me, and this is also one of the best chapter titles I've ever seen, was the speculative fuckbooks chapter. Oh look, good luck. Try- that's um. A- <laughs> 
the brief life of Essex House, which yeah. was a sort of uh, Essex House being a um, a sort of publisher that was sort of a, trying to be a reputable kind of, I suppose, art house publisher hived off a porn business, <laughs> uh, which was not which was something that happened. You know, those two weren't sort of set back in that, and you've got to sort of see that that history that censorship is so strong. Yeah. In the fifties and the you know forties and the fifties and the early part of the sixties, that when all that suddenly falls apart in the seventies, it's just open slather. Yeah, yeah, I'm not saying that some of that stuff is good now or bad. You can look back on it, you can say it's problematic, but you've got to understand why it happens. This huge emphasis on sex and sexuality and sex in science fiction. Like half the book feels like it's about sex in science fiction. Yeah, well, I guess uh, sex extrapolation. Know. Yeah, that's right. And there's, yeah, a whole set, there's a whole chapter, I think, on gay science fiction. Yeah, That particular um, chapter you talked about, speculative fuckbooks, The Brief Life of Essex House, 1968 to 1969. They only went for two years. Produced a couple of dozen books. Yeah, really hard to find. Like that. Yeah. Rebecca Bowman, who wrote that essay, is the librarian in the UK. She, she works at a university, li- not in the UK, sorry, she works at a university library in the US and she's got a big interest in this sort of stuff and she was able to access those books mm. via the university library to enable her to write this essay because God knows how you would find them otherwise. Incredibly yeah. difficult to find. Yeah, well, I, I may never, ever, ever get hold of it, but if I can ever get hold of Season of the Witch by... Jean Marie Stein, it's definitely on my list now. And it was so timely as well, given the conversations that I've had with Hussein recently and, and only last week about the, fa- the third part of the final programme and the meditations on gender and sexuality just, just in the book and just the conversations that Hussein have had. So to actually find out about uh, a 70s book by somebody who was um, undergoing a transition of gender themselves, mm. writing something so radical and fascinating and um at the time probably hugely shocking to the average reader to know that it's out there and also quick shout out to the fact that you've got so many brilliant book covers actually illustrated oh, yeah. as well yeah. the co- yeah. the cover of season of the witch is well insert chef's kiss gif here it's absolutely <laughs> phenomenal uh, so yeah i may never get it but you know what i'm gonna if it takes me 20 years i want to get hold of well, a copy of that it's interesting because essex house also yes essex house did a, a lot i mean there's an essay i've got in the second book um and this is talking about you know this a, a, a sense of urgency that i feel i'm certainly not the only one to try and chronicle as much of this history as i can because people are dying yeah and they're getting old and there's a there was a um, there's a terrific book which I did, wrote a whole essay on in the set in the uh, I think it was the first one. What am I saying? It was in Girl Gangs, and I, it was in the sort of chapter on hippies. There's this there's this fantastic book by this woman called Jane Gallion, and Jane Gallion was published by Essex House. She was actually editing books for Essex House in LA in the in the very early 70s, and she wrote this book which is all about the sort of counterculture and how it impacts on a working class couple in LA. Mm. And, and then there's heaps of books set in um, that time where it's mainly basically work, middle class people dealing with the, the countercultures, very few about the sort of uh, working class. But I actually had contact with that person, Jean Stein. I think mm. you're, is that correct? I haven't got all the details in front of me. Yeah. Jean and I exchanged some emails because Jean was a friend of Jane Galliard. Jane was a big science fiction writer. Jane. So I talked to Jane's daughter about this essay. Jane eventually, so Jane basically edited pornography for Essex House and edited. Right. Porn. She also wrote her own books, and she 
basically had this, she lived in this really dingy part of LA and uh, she was part of this big movement. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Back to the Land movement. So the Back to the Land movement was a big movement in the in the US. It was also actually a bit of a movement in the UK and it was a movement in um, Australia too where people went and lived on the land mm. and left the cities. And it was quite a big effect. It was so big in the US in the early 1970s that it was actually it was actually captured in stats. In, in official demographic stats right. at one stage, it was so big. So it's all these people going out and establishing communes and doing all this. And Jane was one of these people. And she's got this great line in this uh, letter she wrote that I read where she said, look, you know, it's, it's, you think it's easy to edit pornography, but try, try cooking dinner for five hippies on a butane stove and then go, <laughs> going, going and trying to get yourself into the mood to edit porn afterwards. It just doesn't work. <laughs> so I talked, to, I talked to Stein, and this happens all the time. I talked to Stein. We swapped emails and then, then she just dropped off. She just wouldn't reply to my emails anymore because I was wanting to talk to her more about uh, Jane Gallion. Yeah. And I don't know whether I think Stein's still alive or whether she just thought, look, I don't want to talk to this guy or I can't be bothered or I'm too old or I can't remember anything. That that mm. happens constantly in these books because these books, they are a mixture of textual analysis of the books, treating treating books. So it's a bit different with the science fiction one, but certainly with the one about youth pulp fiction and the one about radical pulp fiction, it's textual analysis of books that no one really has ever bothered to read half the time. No one's mm. ever analysed them. Mm. Looking at where the books sit in the culture but also trying to draw as much as you can about who wrote them, why they were writing them. Often you find, you know, in that second book, Sticking It to the Man, um, Revolution and Counterculture in Pulp and Popular Fiction, you find that uh, a lot of the people who are writing these these books which are talking about radical movements in a pulp sense, mm. they're actually members of those movements and then they're, they're knocking out a novel and sometimes they go and knock down knock off more novels or sometimes they just do one or two and you'd never hear from them again. So trying yeah. to trying to look at their lives, trying to look at their books, trying to look at where their books sit in the sort of ecosystem of publishing at the time. I was trying to do that with Jane Gallion. I was hoping Stein would help. Didn't. But that that often happens. You, you, you get a link, someone gives you an email. Of course, I'm in Australia, so I can't often talk to the, you know, it's hard to get to actually eyeball these people. Yeah. You can't. So and, and and that's happened a few times. You you make you make contact with someone. They look like they're going to be a real trove of information, and then they sort of just drop off the drop off out of contact mm. for whatever reason. Obviously, yeah, yeah. I I'd, uh, you know I'm not involved in these things to the same degree that you are by by any stretch of the imagination. I just do this as as a hobby. But I remember a year or two ago, I came across um uh, like an independent self published thing called Dude's Dream about the music of Michael Moorcock, and it's absolutely brilliant. It's wonderful. And um, I contacted the author, and absolutely fair enough, he just said, oh, no, no, you're all right. <laughs> it's like, I was like, oh. <laughs> I it, was, it was too, too couldn't be asked, or too too old, or just I, too... I, I don't know, I don't know. And, you know, fair play to them, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm sure people... Amateur podcasters are probably are, are ten a penny, and they're rocking around all over the place trying to talk to people about various bits and pieces. And, and but but at the time, I was like, mm. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I had a little thirty second soul. When they don't share your passion for wanting yeah. to know about the, absolutely. I mean, I find that I find that often happens. They just get to. I mean, I um I did my so I was talking before about that PhD I did, which was about Australian pop publishing and particularly about Australian 
the Australian pop publisher Horwitz. Yeah. And I interviewed about, I think I interviewed about 20 people. I sort of went around the place. I had university, a bit more, a bit of university funds to do this. And so I managed to talk to about 20 pulp writers and mm. email a whole lot of them. And yeah, some of them, some of them were great. You know, I found this one woman who basically was one of the earliest Australian female pulp writers. And she'd written all these sort of pulp novels set in King's Cross, which is kind of your, your Soho, our yeah. Soho. You know, that was a whole subgenre of pulp, young people coming to King's Cross and being ensnared in a web of vice and degradation and drugs, also having a great time, a lot of sex, playing music, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. She was about 91 when I interviewed her. And God, she was as sharp as a tack. She was amazing. But you'll talk to other people who either just can't be bothered talking to you because they're just it's, it was just part of their life. It was yeah. a part of their life from 40 years ago or 50 years ago that they don't really remember that well or it wasn't that big. It was huge to you and it wasn't that really that big to them or, or yeah. you talk to them and that their memory is so shot for various reasons. It's like, well, I'm not going to really get anything here. Yeah. I've got to also respect the idea that, you know, it's, obviously this, this guy was passionate about what he'd written, but he was passionate about it. He'd written it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, He'd look, written it down. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not everyone can be a freak about it like I am. No. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That, 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 I to- totally respect that. Totally get that. It's, as you say, it's just disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's, it's kind of that personal level of disappointment, isn't it? It's like, I really yeah. want to gas about this with you. you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Talk look, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. There was this. There was this one editor, just to go on and tell, there was this editor at Forwitz, a guy called Ron Smith. And I sort of made trying to get find information about Ron Smith. Ron Smith was a big sci-fi, ran all these sci-fi podcasts, not podcasts, fanzines. Won a Hugo for a fanzine in the, early, in the late 50s. He lived in New York. The Cuban Missile Crisis occurs. He basically bundles his family into a car and they go out to Idlewild Airport or JFK Airport now and they fly to Australia because he just read, what's that uh, Neville Shoot book about the cloud coming to, you know, the wars happened and the cloud, the, the, the radiation cloud is coming. On the beach. On the beach. And so he's read this book and he thinks Australia is going to be the last place that the nuclear cloud comes. I'm going to go to Australia. So he sets himself up in Australia. He basically edits uh, pulp magazines. He works as a while for an, as an editor for Horwitz. He gets into, he basically leaves Horwitz, tries to start up his own porn business. He doesn't really work. He sort of gets into alternative therapies. I tracked down his business partner who I think, you know, oh, this guy's going to be able, because Smith is not exactly an easy name to sort of yeah. try and track down. And this guy just, I tracked, tracked down his business partner in the alternative therapies business that he was doing in Melbourne after he'd left Horwitz thinking, this guy can give me some really good information. He just said, oh, that's a past, past part of my life. I'm not really interested in talking about it now. It's like, but you've got to. You're the one of the few people who knew Ron. Oh, what, what a shame. It's just like, yeah. it, it feels like a missed opportunity to capture something, doesn't it? Exactly. Well, the great thing about this book is that all the people who write the essays capture so much great stuff. And, and we previously mentioned um, sextrapolation, the chapter. And mm. I, I should point out to anybody listening that it's not all about sex this book there's there are fantastic essays there is a on... lot of sex in it though because it's a lot the of 60s sex. and the 70s and yeah. sex drugs alternative being alternative worlds the new way it's it's sex is a major part because sex is seen as bad and in golden age science fiction you know your, your rocket ships and going out and conquering alien universes fighting aliens with ray guns in the 1950s yeah. 
sex is not seen as a key part of science fiction. So a key innovation that the new wave is bringing is there, I mean, it's not, it, it happened before the new wave and it happened before Moorcock, of course, but they're bringing sex into science fiction. Yeah. Women writing about sex in science fiction, men writing about sex. I mean, all, you know, all that sort of stuff is, is ooze just, just basically explodes in science fiction in the late, from the late 1960s onwards. Yeah. I mean, th- th- there are also chapters on, on nuclear war, and science fiction and ecological science fiction, but yeah, yeah. Th- there's a lot. There's a lot of rumpy pumpy shot through it all, and the uh, and the sex extrapolation chapter. There's a couple of things that I really enjoyed in that, and th- the fact that it was dangerous, and, and Moorcock and and Ellison really were caught in it and pushing it, but defending it. And when W. H. Smiths were trying to pressure Moorcock into dropping things or or pulling the publication, he was really fighting it tooth and nail all along the way, just the way Hal and Ellison was as well. But there's, there's an absolutely fantastic extract from uh, a fanzine article that Philip K. Dick wrote where he's, he's effectively kind of lampooning the, the push to all of this experimental, sexualized, speculative fiction writing in, in, in Dangerous Visions, which I laughed out loud at when I read it because there's this idea of Philip K. Dick that he was this odd, speed-addled learner who possibly got you know, s- severe mental health problems towards the end and had visions and all these different things. You don't really get a feel for him as, a, as someone with a sense of humour, although there is humour in his books. But he, he lampoons some of the content of Howard Ellison's Dangerous Visions, and uh, I'm, I'm going to read it out with your permission. Um, sure. It says, In a hydrogen war-ravaged society, the nubile young women go down to the futuristic zoo and have sexual intercourse with various deformed and non-human life forms in the cages. In this particular account, a woman who has been patched together out of the damaged bodies of several women has intercourse with an alien female there in the cage, and later on the woman, by means of futuristic signs, conceives. The infant is born, and she and the female in the cage fight over it to see who gets it. The human woman wins, and promptly eats the offspring, <laughs> hair, teeth, toes and all, and just after she's finished, she discovers that the offspring is God. <laughs> Yeah, yep. <laughs> that's absolutely yep. fantastic. That, no, that's that's not so far off in some. some, <laughs> some of, if you're looking at some of that sort of more out there sort of new wave stuff in the seventies, that's actually not so far off. Some of it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's I wonderful. mean, I think yeah, that that the um all three books. I, I actually think, and I we should I should sort of stress this book will we PM Press who do these three books. They have a, a UK operation. The book will be available in the UK. It will take because of various supply chain issues to do with mm. COVID and all this sort of stuff. It probably will take – it's out in the US probably very early November now. Uh, we won't get it into a, in Australia for a month or two after that, and quite conceivably the UK may not get it for a month or two after that. So it'll, But it'll be, out in the, um, it'll be out in the UK. Mm. Of the three books we've done, this is the best written one. Like we were really lucky with all the writers. And writing about this kind of fiction can be quite hard because you want people who can write about the books in a way that's not looking down and patronising them and mm. looking at why these books were such a major part of the culture. Yeah. And the people who wrote them were serious people often. Often they were hacks, but often they were serious people. So you want people who can write about these books in a way that is both looking at why they were so important in the culture, but is not necessarily valorising or uh, glamorising, let's just say, some of the more what today we'd call unacceptable aspects that are in these books. Hmm. You know, some hmm. of the violence, some of the sexual violence, that sort of stuff. 
Yeah. Well, that really comes across because even when Ian writes an essay about Doctor Who target books, there's there's no not, not a single point where he's is kind of looking down on it or casting any aspersions on it. He's oh. talking about them. And again, I found out something new from that as well. I think I've mentioned on a, when I was talking to Joe Banks about his book about Hawkwind, we were talking about target Doctor Who books and how they were in many ways an entry point into that kind of need to collect a series of books that sit on a shelf not just for aesthetic purposes but because you end up going down a rabbit hole and we talked about how at the time when there was no such thing as Doctor Who on VHS or Betamax or anything like that that was your only way of and there were no repeats that was your only way of accessing past mm. Doctor Who but you know I had no idea that you know someone like an author like Malcolm Hulk was so political or a oh, lifelong socialist and, either, and either the communist party. Been, yeah, absolutely. And, and very deliberately writing progressive mm. radical themes yeah. into these series and quite conceivably having much more impact <laughs> than yeah, someone absolutely. doing an academic paper on it, you know. So so and I mean yeah. I think I, I think absolutely those those target Doctor Who books and they were the it was the same out here. Those target Doctor Who books were gateway stuff. Mm. You would read those, and then you'd get into the other. You'd get into the harder stuff. Mm. Totally. You know, I had all those Target Doctor Who books. Absolutely, and I wish I wish I still had them. Me too. Yeah. yeah. Me too. And I, I, I said to Joe, I said, "There's no way I am now going back to collecting and rereading them all again because I had sixty or seventy of them or whatever yeah. it was, but yeah. at the time, and I took them all in a couple of carrier bags to a shop, and uh, I traded them in for like about a third of the cost of the Dungeons and Dragons Players Handbook, you know, or something <laughs> stupid like that. And um, but I, I, I might make an exception now for the Malcolm Hulk ones. Um, yeah, because right. uh, Ian's essay has, has convinced me there's something else to dive into and something else to unpick. Because funnily enough, I would have read those at the time without ever having seen the original serials. But now I've seen the original serials, I've either watched them on BritBox or I've watched them on DVD or whatever. So, you know, there's a little bit of detail there about how Malcolm Hulk introduced more and read and developed more of those elements in the novelisation. So, yeah, I'm going to be diving in, I think, to some, uh, to some Malcolm Hulk. And it also... It, it kind of reminds me as well that, uh, again, we mentioned on a previous show that Mocock had a had a downer on Pertwee as Doctor Who because he thought it was really? an established. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that. I yeah, didn't know that. He, he said he's not. And he actually used some something like um, the words "not my doctor," <laughs> which oh, is God. which is one of those. Twi- that'd be a hashtag these yeah, days. Well, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Ha- oh, hashtag it, not my I think doctor. It probably has been. You know, Be- because he, he he compared him to Troughton and certain, and he didn't like the fact that I think it was a really superficial service level surface level viewing of of John Pertwee as right the doctor is now embedded in the military and I don't think he went any further than that in his in his analysis I think he must have just stopped watching it but actually you know just reading that that chapter and reading that essay just really actually reinforces when you think back just how progressive and forward-thinking the John Pertwee Doctor Who stories were or certainly some of them you know from ecological perspectives and and challenging authority and and you know trying to make sure that I mean, obviously, he never did it entirely successfully, but but trying to steer the Brigadier and Co. around to a more and he often did. I mean, I, I remember on the in the Green Doctor Who in the Green Death, the Brigadier yeah. comes on board with the fact that that corporation that's polluting that part of England, which is spawning the Green Death, yeah. they're bad. We've got to deal with these guys. Yeah, yeah. You and know, it always happened. That's a real arc for the Brigadier as well, because yeah, that's right. That's two right. seasons, two seasons before in the Silurians, the Brigadier is is pretty awful. You know, is he? Oh yeah, yeah. You're really mean, stretching my memory of it now. I mean, I did. Yeah. I mean, I watched. Yeah. John Pertree was my doctor. 
Yeah. And I he he was what started me off. He was the first one I went, and then obviously we went into um, went into a Tom Baker, and then yeah. I sort of lost kind of interest in it. Yeah. And then when I had a child, I had a daughter, um, and I was desperately trying to wean her off cartoons. We um, we we started rewatching the first two or three series of the New Doctor, and then she lost interest in it, and then I lost sort of. So I would sort of I've come in and come out of it. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. That, so uh, once again, this book is going to end up costing me money because I'm going to end up buying. Well, that's the same. And people say that all the time. Look, these these the, be happy because the the. Largely, the books in Dangerous Visions in New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction, 1950 to 1985, a lot of them are still available. Yeah. Uh, the second book we did, Ticket to the Man, Pulp and Popular Fiction and Revolution and Counter, sorry, Counterculture and Revolution and Pulp and Popular Fiction, those books were really hard to find. Like yeah. That's going to set you back some serious cash to get the books in that one. And then going back to the first book we did, Girl Gangs, Biker Boys and Real Cool Cats, which was about the youth subculture. A lot of that stuff is still quite available, although it's it's getting harder. It's all getting harder to find now. It's all getting harder. It's all getting... And if you're reliant on people on the internet who just sell pulp for this, the most amazing, ridiculous prices, yeah, you know, then yeah, you're gonna be you're gonna be out some money. And I, I don't know whether you're interested, Andy, in collecting them as sort of uh, art, artifacts of a certain time, or whether you want to read them or both. Yeah, it's um, entirely but, both for me. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I love books as things. As well yeah, as likewise, but I do, and as much as that, you know, I've got a lot of criticisms of them too, but really old books, Kindle is great. Kindle is your friend for for out-of-print stuff that you just cannot get. I mean, I'm, I'm in Australia. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, postage from the US is just, is, is almost prohibitive now. Mm. UK, it's still not so bad, but trying to, try to source anything, any old books from the US, God, forget it, because it's just going to cost too much. Often they're on Kindle. If I want to read them, I'll buy them on Kindle. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I won't buy physical books from Amazon, but I will I will read their Kindles, because obviously it's, it's often the only way I can get to read old books. And in terms of researching some of these, um, some of these books, some of, you know, the Dangerous Visions and Girl Gangs, etc., it was it was essential in trying to find the books to read them to write about them. Otherwise, I just mm. wouldn't have been able to do it. Mm. Well, I think to, to be honest, what we need to do is, is start a petition. So instead of collaborating on nuclear submarines, we just put <laughs> some we just put something in place where we can maybe get Don't some of those me. get some of those books back that we dumped on you in the sixties. <laughs> Let's get them coming you know, back. Have the opposite way. that. We're keeping them. We're keeping them. As I say. <laughs> I can still, for all your British listeners, I just, for all your your UK listeners, I want you to know, I can still find Richard Allen books in the wild occasionally, incredibly cheap because no one knows what they are. <laughs> you see that, uh, that is, that's really tough to take over here. I know, I know, it's true, and it's it's I mean, and pans and all that, and it's still buckets of pans. But yes, I, I mean, I've been, we've been in lockdown for the last couple of months again because of COVID. Let's not go there, but just just previous to that, I had travelled to a rural second-hand bookshop I knew, and I found, a, I found a cheap, good condition copy of Richard Allen's Skinhead for $3. So, you know, you're not endearing yourself to me anymore by talking about these things. <laughs> it's, got to, it's got to have been something good about being an, an outpost of British publishing for nearly 100 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, so when, when is this book out? Just before we, we talk about when this book's actually available, because yeah. we we have as many listeners in the USA as we do in the UK. Yeah. Look, looking back on this and, and the terminology around the new wave of SF, it's easy to kind of underestimate the impact because, you know, the, the, the terms new wave start to lose a little 
bit of impact because we've had the new wave of British heavy metal that brought rough, raw, new dimensions to, to rock music in the 80s. We had new wave pop that brought Flock of Seagull haircuts and massive jackets. But actually what this book really puts front and centre is how truly revolutionary and progressive the new wave of science fiction was. And that's why... No, that's just one of the many reasons why this book is just, just such a great read. But when, it's, when is it available? Oh, just before I get into that, I suppose the, the other thing which, I mean, you're right about the new wave. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost become a sort of slightly cliched term now, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Because yep. it's been used so much. And, and I believe Moorcock is not a fan of the term the new wave. Mm. That's, that's my understanding. But um, we also try and look back at earlier, I mean, so we're looking at the new wave, but we're also looking at people who are writing in the 50s. Yeah. And doing radical stuff in the 50s, Judith Morell is one. I think uh, we've got a really good essay about the guy who did the Triffids. Um, oh, John Wyndham. Uh, we've got an essay on sort of the feminist politics of John of John Wyndham, which is a really good sort of essay, yeah. second wave feminist politics. So it's, it's, it's not just about looking, it's, it's about looking at the new wave, that, that it's key, but also what, what came before in the in the fifties, and what's then following in the nineteen seventies, when the sort of that energy of the new wave and of the counterculture generally is starting to, I suppose, there's pushback against that politically on the streets, and there's mm. also a bit of a sense of exhaustion to some degree creeping into that new wave sort of scene in terms of science fiction, and also people are are, are writing about different themes that keeps changing. The book should be out in the US. What's going to be October, but due to supply chain issues with COVID and things like that and delays at the printers, probably the, the, the date is now November. I think it will be out in the UK probably a month or two after that and it will probably be out in Australia a month or two after that too. So probably realistically late 2021, early 2022 for the UK and Australia, I'd say. Yeah. Well, you know, let us know close to the time when you've got more solid information, oh, and, and oh. we'll uh, we'll we'll do our best to plug it. And and the the first two volumes in this this PM Press series, they're still commonly available. They are. So I've certainly got a box of a couple of them. There's a table of boxes of them. So hit me up, people in Australia. Yeah. But um, no, that the, the uh, both girl gangs and sticking it to the man are still available, and PM is still selling them. And yeah. That's going to be another hole like in my wallet. Um, well, <laughs> yes, they will. They will. They, they will really put holes in your wallet. I suspect. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So now we've talked about uh, dangerous visions and new worlds. You are up to other things as well, and actually, you've you've written fiction. I've written crime fiction. I've written film criticism. I've just written an academic book about Australian pulp publishing. I'm yeah. I've, I've done quite a bit. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit I'd about like your to... um, about your novels. Oh, the novels are, look, I've written three novels, no, two novels, actually, and I'm just about to hopefully finish a third. So I've written, um, first novel, my very first novel was a crime story set in Cambodia in the 1990s. I was working there as a journalist at the time. And I've just done, and the sort of second novel I did was a different thing. It was kind of an Australian version of a, I don't know if you're familiar with a, an American author called Richard Stark. Richard Stark basically wrote a character called Parker, who was a criminal. Oh, yeah. I'm aware of yeah, Parker. So, yeah, mainly Parker, because so... for, for a terrible reason, because Phil is a massive Jason Statham fan, and Statham did a Parker movie. It's he did shit. do a Parker film. It's, it's shit, uh, yeah, but it's, I'm aware of yeah. Parker because of that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and there were about there were about a, there were about a good half dozen films based on the Parker books. Yeah, the, the Richard Stark books, and so my second novel and my my third novel, hopefully, which are both published in the US, or the first one is published in the US. I hope the second one will be published by the same publisher, a group called Down and Out Books. 
We'll be publishing that book. That's called Orphan Road. So I'm putting that together now. And lots of pro- more, more projects than I have time to do, you know. Yeah, really? well, I, I very quickly want to talk about Constellation's Rollerball book that yep. you did. Because I'm a massive, massive Rollerball fan. I can't get enough of it. And uh, ever since I recorded it off TV on VHS, and it's one of those tapes that I wore out at the time. There are probably three films where I wore the tape out on VHS from repeated watchings, and they're Kelly's Heroes, Cross of Iron, and Rollerball. All great so, films. Yeah, so so when I saw that, um, I think I'd, I'd, I'd looked at your Pulp Curry website a few months ago, yep. and I ended up getting Constellations, and I can't remember anybody else before, well, or since, it's not that long ago, is it? But I can't remember anybody else <laughs> writing really anything in any detail whatsoever about rollerball, so actually seeing that was like uh, was was manna from heaven to me. So, what what made you end up writing in such depth about rollerball? Uh, I, look, I, I enjoy. I've written quite a lot about film for various publications, you know, um, paid and otherwise. My honest answer actually is, I wanted to see. So, so and and there's not a lot of there's not a lot of outlets to write long form film books. Yeah. So uh, there was a mob called Auteur who have got two imprints. One is a uh, horror imprint, and the other is the other at the time was a new science fiction imprint. The horror imprint is called Devil's Advocates, and the science fiction imprint was called is called Constellations. The science mm. fiction imprint is the newer one. Actually, it's all run by Liverpool University Press now. They yeah. they run all of that. To be honest, I wanted to see whether I could write forty thousand words about a film. That was my. That was actually it was an intellectual challenge to see whether I could do that. And I always loved rollerball. I'd written a little bit about it, and I just thought, oh, look, this would be a really cool thing to write a book about rollerball. And it's actually not just a book about rollerball. It's actually a book about what I call murder sport films, mm-hmm. which are films where people are killed for public consumption. Mm-hmm. That's the key thing. There's heaps of heaps of heaps of films where people play games where and, and murder each other, kill each other. For various rewards, but it's only a murder game film in my definition. It's actually a public consumption, a public sport, something that is beamed to the masses, usually with the aim, as in rollerball, of pacifying them Mm. so that their violent urges, their rebellious urges are channeled into a into a an, an online uh, sort of a sport, quote unquote, like rollerball, which is basically you know what that book is about. I want to see if I could write forty thousand words about it. I ended up writing about rollerball, but also about that um, about murder game films generally, but also about that point because rollerball. Why rollerball hasn't received a great deal of critical recognition is because mo- it has this really weird position. As so it's basically seen as I suppose a sort of exploitation film some in mm. some respects for those incredible game sequences, which are mm. I've got to say, and my top tip people, if you do want to write a monograph of forty thousand words about a film, make sure you like the film because you're going to have to write watch the film <laughs> at least about a dozen times as I did, and the and the and the game sequences never get old. They mm. are astounding. They're superb. Yeah. Well, They're all, pe- superb. all all pre CGI. Yeah. With you know Norman Jewison, the director of Rollerball, basically having to recruit people who played, um, you know, who play who were motorbike riders, who played roller derby, takes them all to Munich and literally rehearses them on this on this skate on this cycling rink that is built for the Munich Olympics, rents it for a month and just rehearses these guys 
playing rollable invent has to invent this whole game. And actually, mm. I I interviewed uh, I interviewed Jewess and Norman Jewess and the director of Rollable for the book, and he's very clear. And this also came out very clearly from my own research that he got so into the whole thing about what is rollable and having to have a realistic game that a lot of the, a lot of the rest of the film kind of suffers, and it's all mm. focused on those three incredibly visceral game sequences yeah but the, the, the film is very much so so there's so it's um there's a chap called harrison i can't remember his first name uh harrison writes it rollerball starts off as a short story in a squire william harrison you, i think yeah it was harrison i'm pretty yeah, sure it was is it harrison. william harrison i can't remember william harrison william yeah. harrison writes this very sort of it's about 30 page story jewison is one of the most powerful directors in the world at mm. this time he's really he's on a career height He's just come off Jesus Christ Superstar. He's done In the Heat of the Night, all these other incredible films. And science fiction is actually becoming science fiction, which up until the early 70s had been a really disreputable genre to make films in. And I mean, it's really only 2001 A Space, so it's 1968 when you have 2001 A Space Odyssey, Planet of the Apes, and to a sort of lesser degree, Barbarella that people start going, oh, science fiction, right. So it's actually that that we can actually make money from science. So studio heads are going, we can make money from science fiction. Also, the technological advances are such that you could actually start to do halfway decent special effects. And Jewison is looking around. Here's there's this story called Rollerball, literally goes into a meeting with Universal, Universal Studios, pitches this kind of half-formed idea on the base of this, basis of this story he's read in Esquire magazine. And yeah, they give him squillions of dollars to make this to make this incredibly depress, depressing dystopian <laughs> film about this future that's run by you know half a dozen you know by by, by corporations. Yeah, and everything is sort of channeled into this incredibly violent game called Rollable. Yeah, the, the game sequences were what sold the film. It was, I mean, you would have remembered the publicity for the film back in the day. Probably it was just it was all that that spiked hand. Oh, the poster the, was um, fucking brilliant. The spike, the incredibly exaggerated spikes and the yeah. ball. Everyone, I mean, there was people on the back of that. You know, kids would play roll. I remember at school we played rollerball. People were wanting <laughs> people approached Jewison to buy the rights so they could start up a rollerball league. Yeah, there were all these debates. There's a clip on YouTube, I think, of this British show where they're discussing, you know, violence and culture and roll. Is rollerball contributing to that, or is it a symptom of that? Or so the book is about that period in the 70s, and, and Jewison was very anti-violent, and he made the film as a critique of capitalism and as a critique of the violence that he saw in sport in the mm. 1970s. The film comes out, all anyone can focus on is the violence in the sport, and they think it's great, and they all want to play it, and isn't this wonderful? And Jewison's kind of shocked by this. He doesn't yeah. really quite know how to deal with it. And it's not a huge hit in America. Massive hit in Europe and Japan and all over the place. It's not huge in America. I just think because they couldn't quite jive with some of the themes in Rollerball. You know, it's big in the UK where you know there's soccer, soccer violence and stuff like that. It's not quite doesn't quite work in America. So anyway, I just wanted to see if I could write as an intellectual exercise. Could I write forty thousand words on a film? Yeah, and it turns out I could. Yeah. Well, t- two things there. One is that I really like reading movie monographs. Um, yeah, so I, do I. Cause, cause I'm Another a film, good monograph. I'm a film nerd. And there's there's a UK publisher called PS Publishing that's published a really fantastic series of monographs on really quite obscure movies like Horror Express 
and Deathline. Yeah. There's one on the Brood, but they're re- really, really fantastic. I'll send you the link. Uh, to yeah, do do. Yes, publishing. Well, I love I love reading a good monograph too, and I mean, Auteur slash Liverpool University Press, one of the few outfits around that are publishing, you know, forty thousand word monographs on films. Done really successful, done really big films like you know, the, the Constellation series has done, um, you know, Blade Runner and the big, big films like that. But they've also done really small sort of scale films, lesser known mm. sort of films as well. They, they did um, the Stepford Wives. They did a mm. terrific um, monograph on that. And Ditto, the, the Devil's Advocate, their horror imprint, has done all has done a huge swathe of films really well known and not so well known really obscure you know yeah yeah i'll send you the links afterwards yeah, do, um do. and the, the actually I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes as well and uh, just the other observation on that is it's funny when you talk about rollerball if they put so much effort into the the actual sports scenes and of course as a kid what dragged me into it was the sports scenes because they were of just course. so incredibly brutal and so and so well realized but over the years and actually i've, I've, I've got the blu-ray um, released by Arrow uh, a couple of years ago, and I've watched it probably half a dozen times since anyway. But I think it's one of those actual happy accidents that they didn't spend quite as much time perhaps on the character stuff in between. And there's a sense where everything feels quite muted and and slow, but it's this society where the all you know the wealthy all take pills <laughs> to chill themselves out, or they take pills and then run out into a field to set trees on fire with some kind of energy weapon. I think it really works. I think it really works because it gives this weird idea that like the upper echelons of society are all effectively on Soma. And then it's, it contrasts so brilliantly with the violence and the energy of, of the sports scenes. I think Jewison might have felt that way about, about the film and perhaps he didn't put as much effort in, but I think actually the, the, the result is that you get that fantastic contrast. And, uh, and the, the brilliant bit with John Gielgud, who just pops up in it as that bumbling old scientist who was like the, uh, you know, the, the last... Um, caretaker of human knowledge in terms of that computer. I think every single film of that is hits, that zero, zero the perfect. Computer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, I think I think that I agree with you. I mean, I think also Jewison makes Rollerball, and then he's on to the next thing. Yeah, you know. And I think there's so I went to Arkansas. So so William Harrison worked as a as a lecturer at the University of Arkansas as an I think as an English professor or something like that. And his archive is there. And uh, so I spent some time there, and I got a lot of, lot of really good material. And uh, this is a big deal for for Harrison. He's mm. you know Jewison asks him to come on set, and he's, he's he's written the script, and he's spending time and he's at Pinewood Studios and he's basically having lunch in the canteen with John Borman and all that. He loves this. <laughs> yeah. and it's very clear that he wants this to go other places. And then Jewison's moved on. Thanks a lot, William. That's great. Now we're, you know, I'm moving on to my next film now. That's terrific. William Harrison, I think, does one or two more scripts and then nothing really ever happens. But I think it does come into its own as a sort of depiction of a dystopia that is is... Really, really familiar now, as you say. It's a dystopia where actually the problem is memory and the eradication of memory and the the ability to actually remember you know, facts, truth. The actually the ability to remember what's going on in history. There's a really good scene in um, Rollerball. So the Rollerball is all about for people who don't know it is about this this major league rollerball, this incredibly violent sport run by corporations and the, and it's basically a distraction from the oppression of you know from the from the dominance of these corporations and there's this really famous player 
Jonathan, he becomes so famous in the sport that the, that the corporations want him out because he's actually mitigating. He's actually confounding what the sport was set up to show, which is that there's futility in human effort, mm. in individual effort. And, and here's an individual who's become more than the game. And so they, they start changing all the rules and the, game, the, the, the games get progressively more and more violent because they're trying to drive him out mm. into retirement. And what starts off as a sort of, very gentle way to sort of prod him into retirement gets more and more violent. But it's, you know, there's a scene with Moses Gunt, this African-American actor who's sort of James Kahn, a.k.a. Jonathan E's coach, where Moses Gunn is talking about history and he's going, how did, whatever happened to that town? Whatever happened in Baltimore? Is Baltimore the food city? I can't remember. What's happening here? The fog. It's mm. a very real thing today, you know. So it's all about history and facts. It's a it's a dystopia that is very sort of Huxleyan, mm. you know. And this and, and as you say, they take they take sort of mood enhancing drugs, which make them happy, but fog their memory even yeah. more. All of the world's knowledge is put into this giant computer called Zero. I think it is. Is it mm-hmm. Zero? The this, and yep. yes, it's housed in this building in Zurich. And Jonathan E is trying to get information about who start who started volleyball. Where did all this happen? How do I find out about my life and what this sport I play? And he has to basically go to this computer in Zurich. And, and as you say, there's that wonderful scene with John Gilgood where he yeah. said, oh, Zero, he's been very naughty today. <laughs> he's misplaced the 14th century. <laughs> yeah. You know, the entire 14th century is gone. I mean, mainly wars and a few corrupt popes, but still incredibly annoying. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's very that's very um now. Yeah. In terms of Google and, you know, all that sort of stuff and the ability and, and, and information. It's it's an absolutely brilliant film. I, I think it would be remiss of us if we didn't pass twenty seconds comment on the John McTiernan remake. Yes, well we can I think twenty seconds is about all I would possibly <laughs> give it. Yeah. Um sorry, I'm sorry to say that. I mean how to take a how to take the key concepts of a film and turn it into an absolute piece of shit. Yeah. That pretty much sums it up. And I, yeah, I yeah, that... and, and McTiernan made some great films. Yeah. I think that's all the twenty seconds it deserves. Frankly. Yeah, rollerball is rollerball is not one of them, no. I have to say. Yes. No. But I mean I think I Really interesting film, and in some respects, I lucked onto Rollerball because Constellations, that was Auteur's science fiction series, was just starting up, and right. they were looking for ideas. Everyone was wanting to write horror monographs for um, Devil's Advocates, their horror one. And hmm. John um, was sort of saying to me, John, the guy who runs it in England, said, "Look, you know, we, I am after sci-fi ones." And I went, "What about Rollerball?" Hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Write me a proposal. So you know, yeah, it's, it's, and it's a real privilege to write that at that length about a film. I loved. I, I really liked it. I mean, I probably shouldn't have done it at the same time as trying to write my PhD dissertation. But hey, <laughs> you learn these. You learn these things. Yeah. So you also get your website, Pulp Curry, yep. and uh, and that is pulpcurry.com. www.pulpcurry, P-U-L-P Curry, as in the hot dish you eat. Dot yep. com. Yep, and uh, I just need to flag that um, anybody who enjoyed the James Herbert the Rats episode, there's actually an interview with James Herbert that you've posted on there very recently. I have, courtesy of a British horror author and researcher called Johnny Maines, who did an interview with Herbert and had no online home for it. Uh, Johnny also did a whole lot of interviews with a whole lot of other NEL people, but I think a computer crashed and he lost all that stuff. But I will say now, British pop culture and pop scholars why no one has written a decent history of NEL is, is I'm completely flabbergasted by. Mm. And no one has. No one has written a decent history of that publisher. 
incredibly influential, important publisher. I mean, there's bits, there's bits of um, NEL and bits of NEL authors all over the web, but no one has really pulled that together and done a done a history of how it worked, how it got its ideas from, and what its place was in British popular pub- publishing in the early 1970s. It's, yeah. it's it, 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 I find it quite gobsmacking. What are you yeah. guys doing? Another thing crying out to be done. Uh, maybe some point in the future, if we can think of an angle, we can get our heads together, have a beer, and talk about NEL. I would love to do that. I mean, look, I've, a, a really fascinating publisher. Yeah, it would totally fit with you know into our swim lane because I would say probably a quarter of the books Pops gave me back in the day were NEL books, NEL paperbacks. Yeah. I've still yeah. got a lot yeah. of them as well. In fact, as it happens, I, mean, I can't believe it's actually over twelve months since we did the Rats episode for Halloween. Sorry, eleven months since we did the Rats episode for Halloween last year. But we're doing another NEL classic for Halloween this year after doing a poll with the patrons. With the patrons, we're doing a Night of the Crabs by Guy oh. and Smith. So. Guy, you can still find those books in British people. You can still find those books in Australia reasonably cheap too. Well, I tell you what, Guy and Smith books are getting like rocking horse shit over here. Yeah. No, that, that, I'm exaggerating slightly, but I still do find Guy and Smith books every now and again. Yeah, out, out of all that kind of field, Guy and Smith, uh, J- James Herbert, ten a penny, you can get them all over the place. Uh, but yeah, Guy mm. and Smith um, is is actually you're, you're paying quite good prices for Guy and Smith books these days. I, I needed a second copy of Night of the Crabs for Phil to read for when we do it for the Halloween episode. I paid about fifteen quid for a, for a copy of um, Night. You've of had Crabs. trabble getting those, have you? Yeah, and there's, there's there's quite a few others as well, which are a lot more obscure. In fact, he, it was pointed out to me by Graham, a.k.a. Open Sussex, who's one of the friends of the show, that he'd come across a Guy N. Smith um, Prisoner of War exploitation book. Totally NEL's bullywhack. Yeah, yeah. In the so. 1970s. Look, I think, you know, we did we covered NEL quite a lot in the first book. So we had, that was Girl Gangs, Biker Boys and Real Cool Cats, Pulp Fiction and Youth Culture. We had a whole chapter which was essentially NEL biker books, about half, about three or four articles on NEL biker books. And we we had a chapter which was on sort of um, British sort of youth subculture books of the 1970s. They deserved a whole chapter on their own. And we, we reproduced some stuff by a guy called Stuart Holm. I don't know if you know Stuart Holmes, a sort of English critic, and he'd written quite a bit of stuff on his website. So we, we lifted, with, obviously, with his permission. And we, we also did some new stuff. Those books were so incredibly influential. And I love the fact that this book, Skinhead by Richard Allen, and everyone thinks, wow, this guy's written so accurately about skinhead culture. Mm. That this guy must be a skinhead, and it is. And actually, there's a documentary on YouTube, Skinhead Farewell. I can't remember what it's called. You'll find it on YouTube. It's about a 30-minute documentary about New English Library books, mainly about the Richard Allen skinhead books. And there's one scene where they're talking to all these skinheads, and this and these skinheads are going, and I won't try and do the English accent, hmm. but they're all going, "Yeah, this guy has to be." Or the various derivations of an English UK accent. Yeah. This guy has to be a skinhead. He's got he's he's nailed us so consistently. And I'm thinking, well, I was thinking, did you mean the violence, the nationalism, the racism, all that sort of stuff? But yeah. no, he's done that. And it turns out these books are written by this aging alcoholic Canadian hat writer called Richard <laughs> Allen, whose whose sole research in terms of writing the skinhead books is probably reading a lot of tabloid newspapers and all the reports, but he actually goes to goes down to London, walks into a pub, finds some skinheads, chats to them for a couple of couple of hours, buys them some lagers, pisses off back north, writes writes skinhead, and it's so influential. You know, teachers are giving it to their students because they're so so happy to see kids reading a book. 
Yeah. You know, even if it's skinhead. I just think that is one of the greatest stories in pulp publishing I've ever heard. Yeah. Weirdly. Phenomenal. Those yeah. books completely passed me by. I ne- never even heard of them till a couple of years ago. Yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, the other ones that I think are really interesting from a point of view of this show, but also generally. So, look, one really big strand of pulp fiction in the 60s, it sort of becomes roundabout easy rider. And then it goes on is biker books. And biker books are a big thing in the UK, in the US. They're actually quite big in Australia. There's this whole Horwitz do this whole series of biker exploitation books. And there and NEL is the primary producer of biker books in the UK. I'm not I'm not a huge I'm not massively knowledgeable about the US ones. The Australian ones are by and large shit. The UK ones though are really good. The UK ones are biker books. A lot of them set in this crumbling England where there's all these weird biker gangs and youth subcultures and the, the bikers are engaged in this war against a despotic government. And it's they're really, really very good, mm. I think. Some of, I mean, there's, there's things in them that won't pass muster with contemporary sensibilities. But the, 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 new, the new English library biker books I've read have been top-notch in terms of mixing all those sort of mixing biker stuff with what's going on in the culture and some sort of really weird aspects of where new wave science fiction in the UK is going in the 1970s, which is, you know, heavily dystopian, oppressive governments, you know, dysfunctional society, things collapsing. I won't, I won't say there's any parallel to today, mm. but, um, you know, that's, that's definitely, those books are worth getting. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, once again, I'm just tallying up all of these things and adding them to my to-buy list, and my wallet is going to explode with all this. Explode with Yeah. So on that exploding wallet bombshell, I'm going to say this has been really fantastic. It's Reading this book really opened my eyes to a lot of things that I thought I knew quite a, a bit about and a lot of things that I knew fuck all about. So a brilliant read. Strongly encourage anybody who is into this brand of fiction to be all over it, but also... Um, to to realise that they will end up going down rabbit holes and chasing all sorts of books that uh, that they'll definitely want to read, especially voracious readers who are fans of this podcast. So thanks, Andrew, for coming on. It's been absolutely brilliant. I hope we can get together again at some point in the future and maybe talk about something else like NEL or anything else that occurs to us. I would love to, Andy. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Super. Thanks very much. No worries. Massive thanks to Andrew Nett for joining me in Virtual Derry and Toms. And you may have noticed this was recorded before the Halloween show. Our rod got a bit messed up due to technical issues, but no harm, no foul. You can find Andrew's website at pulpcurry.com and New Worlds and Dangerous Visions is available to order now, as are the previous volumes. Also, Andrew's Rollerball edition of the Constellations chapbook series is also available via Rotair Publishing and highly recommended to fans of the movie. Due to the shipping issues Andrew mentioned, my copy of New Worlds and Dangerous Visions is yet to arrive, so I can't make a random draw for a copy of that on this show, sadly. However, whilst on my jollies a while back, I did pick up a second copy of the 1970 Hutchinson's of London edition of The Chinese Agent, featuring the wacky and eyebrow-raising spy caperings of one Jerry Carnell. It's a nicely weathered hardcover edition, formerly of the West Derby branch of Liverpool City Libraries, so it has a nice bit of history to it. So, the dice have spoken, and the winner is 
Gareth Wilson. Gareth, I'll get it in the post here this week. But now, time to thank our patrons. And I'm going to start with our TLS champions, Tim Cardos, Sebastian Weetabix, and Anthony Piconti. Thanks as ever, fellas. And also, navigating the grey fees, our chaos engineers. They are Andrew Van Ness, Andrew Cicluna, Anthony Porter, Ben Fletcher, Dave Washman, Fred Keish, Jim Kirkland, John Lays, John Timothy Watt, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Matt Saltz, Nelbert, Simon Perrins, and Tony Malazzo. And to our Jugaderos playing the tables at the Terminal Cafe, Alexander Harris, Craig Ledley, Ian Stead, Laws, Taylor, Asako So, Miles Reed Labato, Graham Holden, Tom Murphy, and, new to the decks, Dave Dalrymple of the Frozen North. Welcome aboard, Dave. Brute of Lashmar is knitting you a scarf and mittens, and has saved you a spot by the brazier. Although you might have to listen to his thoughts on democratic accountability in the 39 worlds of Oog below decks. And of course, to our mighty patron demons. They are Andy Clark, Ed Scott, Gareth Wilson, Imria, Paul Hillary, Mortmain, Neil Burton, Norman Beresford, Randall Gatlin, Joe Monty, Will Jameson, and Robert McMillan. So, that's enough from me. As ever, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins@outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too, where there are a couple of bells and whistles. And also, we'll be recording a short follow-up to our Night of the Crabs episode with uh, our own friend of the show, Graham Holden, and Phil. We'll be talking a little bit more about Guy and Smith, and also we've taken a look at Crab's Moon, a subsequent Crab's novel that takes place exactly the same time chronologically as Night of the Crabs down the coast. Excitement awaits. So meanwhile, take care, stay safe, and I'll see you again soon on the Moonbeam Roads. <laughs>